Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast that discusses common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. My name is Matt Miller. I'm Matt Henry. And today we continue on with the Holy Spirit, um, specifically the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And so last time we talked about the personality or the personhood of the Holy Spirit, and so now we jump into his functions. So just to give a little bit first here about the language that's used to speak of the Holy Spirit. Um, well, first of all, I'll say that it's difficult to identify the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Uh, he, he appears in what we'll just call shadows. His work is felt, but mildly referenced. And we must remember that it was the early state of progressive revelation. And so as a result, we don't see the fullness of his ministry in the Old Testament because that was not really the concern of those Old Testament authors and therefore not really the concern obviously of god well you don't see you don't see the sun overtly drawn out in the same way either because right. it was really presenting yahweh the triune god though by the time we're done we should be to show them between this one and also the ones we've done on the trinity that actually there's a lot more than you realize you just have to pay closer to it, attention to it right Exactly. So, so th there's really not a lot in terms of the language, but you want to get this first phrase here? You mean the Spirit of God? Yeah, that's how it's phrased, yeah. <laughs> okay. Just want to make certain we're on the same page literally. Uh, so the term Holy Spirit is rarely used in the Old Testament. Um, in fact, the Hebrew scarcely uses adjectives like Holy Spirit, but frequently puts together two no nouns. So you'll instead read it like Spirit God, which would mean uh, the Spirit of God. And you see that phrase picked up in Acts chapter 2, 16 to 21, that gives a clear indication that the New Testament authors understood the Old Testament phrase to be an identifying reference to the Spirit or the Holy Spirit. The point is that the phrase Spirit of God is synonymous with Holy Spirit in the New Testament, which makes sense because yeah. holy, um, that, that is the essence of God. And so the Spirit of God or Holy Spirit, they're really in apposition to one another. Yes, yeah, yeah. good word. So, uh, Yeah, then you have spirit, where you'll just see it as spirit. I mean, there's no monitors. <laughs> you got to keep that water down there? <laughs> yeah, don't do that when I'm drinking um, spirit, and it means spirit. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, there's... This is deep. <laughs> yeah, well, there's just no modifier. Uh, it's just the word ruach. Uh, so Isaiah 32, 15, where it says, until the spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field is considered as a forest. Or Joel 2.28, predicting the, the coming of the new covenant, typified by the coming of the Spirit, says, and it will come about after this that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind. So there's no modifier. You just see it as Spirit. So with your yours, we see Spirit of God. Sometimes you'll just see Spirit. And then other times you'll see um, just breath. Yeah, I mean it's and it's actually the same word translated as spirit, which is ruach. It means breath or spirit. So Ezekiel thirty-seven five, for instance, it says, "Thus says the Lord God to those these bones: Behold, I will cause breath or spirit." 
to enter you that you may come to life. Now, with this one, Ezekiel 37, the Valley of Dry Bones, as it's commonly referred to, sure. uh, the whole context of the chapter is in reference to the Spirit, um, because the, the Spirit of Yahweh, or the Ruach of Yahweh, is overtly mentioned in verse 1 of that chapter, which therefore makes all those, those subsequent references to Ruach uh, an identifying mark of the Holy Spirit. So when 37.5 speaks of causing breath or ruach to enter these bones, it's a, actually a reference to the Holy Spirit giving life. Um, so what's the next point? All right. So then you have the spirit of work at work in creation uh, of all that exists. The most obvious passage is Genesis 1-2. The earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was moving over the surfaces of the waters. Uh, so here the spirit or the spirit of God is protecting and making ready that unformed chaos for the father to mold and create into a hospitable world. Uh, but also, it, you see that the Spirit is a member of the Trinity that brings forth life. Just as he is the one who regenerates uh, to bring forth spiritual life, like John 3 says, he's also the member of the Trinity that brings forth life in physical creation. Sort of also connected, though, to that valley of dry bones of mm -hmm. that, that they're so close that our breath is what gives us life and the spirit is what gives us life. But that's part of his economic function. You'll recall that that speaks of his duties or role, uh, not his essential being. Uh, just as the spirit is the one who raised Jesus from the dead, which is what Romans 8.11 says, so it will be the spirit who will raise the dead in Christ. Uh, trees grow leaves, birds fly, squirrels crack nuts um, and dig up plants like they do at our house. Uh, and humans blink their eyes. Why? Because the spirit brings order and life and animation, which is kind of cool because then you start to realize that you just see his handiwork just where yeah. you see life existing. The and, spirit's and, there. Yeah, yeah, you're like, this is the work of the spirit. Um, and so, again, this is one of the spirit's economic functions. You know, it's interesting. Uh, Graham, Graham Cole in his book on the spirit, he even talks about like things like art, um, just that that act of creating or bringing order or or dominion to something is the evidence of the spirit at work. Now they're not it's not talking about like regeneration or the person's sure, a Christian sure. or something like that, but just the fact that there's life there, there's animation, and that person is still carrying out that image of God in them to create and do things and bring order. Um, that's still the spirit in some way at work, and we don't think about it that way. Well, I think that Romans 1, 18 and following is going to be far more terrifying for everyone than we really realize, where it says that though we knew him as God, we did not honor him as God, nor give thanks. You know, that in everything we shifted our joy and our hope and our love and our worship to the creature rather than God because of just things like that, that in the most basic things that everybody is doing— God is present there and and is enabling you to do it in some way or another, and we don't pause to give him thanks for it. And um, I think it's just heaping that wrath. I mean, picture that with billions of people at any given moment just going about their life with no thought of the creator who has given them these things and does these things with, with them and in them. So anyhow, that's off the topic, but yeah. um, the whole point is that Genesis 1-2 shows that the Spirit brings order, life, animation at the word of the Father. Uh, it was a Spirit uh, was merely moving over the formless, chaotic waters. He would not, though, bring the life until the Father actually commanded it. 
Yeah. So not only does the spirit bring forth life or give life, but he also preserves and protects. So Deuteronomy 32, 10 through 11 says, he found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of a wilderness, he encircled him. He cared for him. He guarded him as the pupil of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young. He spread his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. Now, he, he's the spirit. Speaking of the spirit here, and the spirit's described as hovering over them, like an eagle does her, her young. He, he's protecting and preserving them. In other words, and again, it's a work that here is attributed to the spirit. Um, another one is Isaiah sixty-three. 7 through 14. That's long. Let me read it, and then you can comment. Uh, he says, I will make mention of the loving kindness of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has granted them according to his compassion and according to the abundance of his loving kindnesses. For he said, surely they are my people, sons who will not deal falsely. So he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them and carried them all the days of old, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned himself to become their enemy. He fought against them, and then his people remembered the days of old of Moses. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of, the Mo of Moses? Who divided the waters before them to make him for himself an everlasting name? Who led them through the depths? Like the horse in the wilderness, they did not stumble. And as the cattle which go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Yeah, so here um, we see that it's, of course, the Spirit, the one who's prompting the people for the Exodus. But also, we usually just think about the Exodus event as God. You know, God mm -hmm. split the waters. God brought the people and led them, protected them. But here it's explicitly identified as the Holy Spirit doing this. He put the Spirit in their midst, and then he went and fought for them. He caused armies to flee, uh, all those things. And then ultimately... At the very end, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest um, when he brings them into that land. It's a really neat passage. Though. Yeah. Um, it also is kind of sad because literally he makes them, he blesses them, they forget them, and then they begin to say, who was it that led us? And they, it's just, it's like, what a sad picture of what apostasy does, but also the ongoing promise that Isaiah gives that he will restore them. But yeah. Anyhow, the third thing that he's involved in is the giving of prophecy and scripture. And so you have Old Testament affirmations. We're not going to read them all. Uh, you can get them in the show notes. But uh, in Ezekiel 2.2, it says, And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered me and set, on my and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. But that's pretty straightforward. Pretty I mean, yeah. You don't have to know Hebrew to know what that just said. But you also have it in the New Testament. So... Um, Acts 1 16, brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Or in Acts 4 25, who, let, who by this Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, thy servant, did say, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? So each one of those are 
even in the New Testament scene that the Spirit is the one who's granting these words, um, a prophecy. Yeah, in the Old Testament, right? Right. Um, and then fourth, the Holy Spirit also uh, is involved in conveying necessary skills and tasks. So, for instance, uh, the constructing and the furnishing of the temple, Exodus 31, 1 through 5, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding in knowledge and in all kinds of craftsmanship to make artistic designs for work in gold and silver and in bronze and in the cutting of stones for settings and in the carving of wood that he may work in all kinds of craftsmanship. So there it's the spirit who's actually giving these skills to accomplish this holy task of constructing the tabernacle. That's kind of cool. Yeah. And then also the spirit's involved in administration within the Old Testament. Uh, Genesis 41, 38. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? Uh, uh, who's that talking about? can't remember. Um, but the reference is... I think, to, I think it's Joseph, but yeah. I'll, I'll check on that. Sounds about right, Genesis 40, yeah. Um, Numbers eleven twenty five as well. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him, and he took of the spirit who was upon him and placed him upon the 70 elders. And it came about that when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied, but they did not do it again. Now here we see the ministry of the spirit is not necessarily for the rest of a person's life uh, in the Old Testament. It may just be for a very short time to accomplish a specific task or purpose of God. So he, he'll, he'll grant the spirit to accomplish something and then uh, withdraw yeah. this spirit when that work is finished. Yeah, we call it in the New Testament, uh, um, not the baptism, um, being filled with the spirit. That yeah. it, that, and we're not talking about the walking in the power of the spirit. It's that unique filling, and whenever it happens, something amazing happens. Same thing in the Old. Yeah. Just different terminology. Right, right. Uh, yeah, in the Old Testament, it's coming upon yeah. or anointing. Uh, in Deuteronomy 34, 9, it says, Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him, and the sons of Israel listened to him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now, here's an example of where you see the spirit's work being felt, but it's not explicitly necessarily stated. Um, it's the spirit of wisdom, which there it's understood to be attributed to God himself. Sure. So what's another? All right. So you also have leadership and mighty acts, and uh, specifically to make war during the time of the judges. So uh, Judges 3.10, the spirit of the Lord came upon him. And he and again, there's that falling upon or being filled. Uh, he judged Israel. And when he went out to war, the Lord gave oh, golly, uh, Kushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. I can't say that word. My lips don't work that way. Mesopotamia. Meso Mesopotamia. Good job. Um, into his hands so that he prevailed over Kushan <laughs> Rishatha. I'm just paying you back for Sunday, you know? <laughs> Anyhow, so you can look at the other two passages. They're easier to read, but they're all in Judges, all of them the falling of the Spirit of God upon the judge so as to bring about war. I uh, also have the endowment of the early kings. So in 1 Samuel 16, 13, uh, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Again, it's no different than the Spirit filling a person in New Testament, and then they prophesy or they would heal. Um, the Spirit's also saving work prior to Christ. Uh, now, first, a general statement. The work of the Holy Spirit was essentially limited 
to a select group of leaders. And this now will qualify. It doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit was inactive in the lives of the ordinary common people of Israel at the same time, right? So, right. but when you look at it, he, his work is essentially operating right now within that select group. So a good biblical pneumatology informs us that it is the Spirit who gives life so that men and women desire to walk with the Lord and obey His commands. And we know from the full testimony of Scripture that men are by nature dead in their sins, actively hostile toward God, all of that as a result of original sin. So a full biblical understanding of the role of the Spirit tells us that the Spirit had in some way to interact with the common individuals in the Old Testament. In other words, nobody got saved. Yeah. Nobody believed in Yahweh unless the Spirit regenerated him. But that's not how we see the Spirit working out. The Spirit is explicitly spoken of in individual lives. Right. But yeah, and usually unique leaders. And and maybe they didn't understand that the Spirit regenerated somebody so that they became a believing Jew, if you want to say it sure. that way. But through progressive revelation, we're able to see, according to John, that Jesus says no one can come unless he's been born again. And, and he has to have been born of the Spirit. So now we can realize, oh, then that's what's really going on back there. Not that it wasn't going on, but that it was just through progressive revelation now made obvious. Yeah, exactly. Would you agree with that? 100%. So, yeah, so you, you do then see primarily... Uh, the identifiable work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament material specifically being limited to these, these leaders, if you will. So there, there's three in particular. We see it with judges, we see it with kings, and we see it with prophets. So with, with the judges, uh, we see over and over again, the Holy Spirit stirs up these judges to deliver Israel from its oppressors. Uh, this is something known as the judges cycle. I think judges is probably one of the most brilliantly constructed books in the Old Testament, I think, um, because of these judges cycles. So you have all these, these cycles where you have Israel would rebel, Israel would then be conquered by some oppressor. Um, they would languish in obscurity and slavery for decades. And then the Holy Spirit of God would stir up a military liberator, these people called judge, a judge to then free Israel from its oppressors. And you have these, this happening over and over again in the way that Judges is constructed is every time uh, they go back into sin and they're oppressed and then God raises up a judge, the story's a little bit longer and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger until you finally get to uh, what's the narcissistic guy who knocks, who's really strong? Samson. Um, <laughs> he's, he's the final Wait one. until he sees you in heaven. <laughs> yeah. oh. um, so he's the final one, but he takes up a long story. Um, because their, their wickedness gets worse and worse and worse. And even the judges be themselves become corrupt, uh, screwed up individuals like Samson himself. Um, so it's a, just the construction of the, the book is pretty neat. But um, so I like you, Nehemiah. Why? I don't know. Well, you're just, mostly just being honoring. I never heard you whack so eloquently about judges in my life. Really? Yeah. Wow. You're welcome. Yeah, I'm blessed. Yeah. Right now, I have the Shekinah glory literally hovering around me because of that. Thank you. Boy. <laughs> I, Sorry. I'm quitting I just, this podcast. I just watched the lawnmower guy that's not supposed to be here until tomorrow come driving by in this lawnmower. And I'm like, what? What part of Thursdays does not mean Thursday? 
I don't know, but let's get back to this. I need to find a new partner or you need to find a new partner in one of these two. Okay. So you got judges, then you got uh, kings. You want to do kings? Sure. The Holy Spirit came upon the kings in the same way. They equipped them to rule the people of Israel. And so the spirit would come upon kings for a season. Again, uh, it wasn't just this abiding presence. Uh, the spirit could then withdraw that presence in cases of heinous sin, um, which is the whole idea of anointing. Anointing would symbolize God's presence was with a king in a unique way. So the anointing, if you didn't know, was with oil. So 1 Samuel 16, 13 to 14, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah, and the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him, which is also a little crazy because he's got that evil spirit. Mm -hmm. um, but this is what's behind David's cry then in Psalm 5111, uh, when he says, do not take your spirit from me. He saw what that looks like in the life of Saul, and he's like, I don't want that. It's not a loss of salvation. It's the idea that that anointing and that empowering that God places upon him would go away, and he doesn't want it to happen. Yeah. You also see it with the prophets. So the Holy Spirit spoke by the mouths of the prophets. Um, in 2 Peter 1, 19 to 21, it says, And so we have the prophetic word that is more sure, to which you do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in our heart, your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by the act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Yeah. Um, then the Old Testament also has a theme of great expectation. Um, so there, there's a theme of anticipation that courses through the Old Testament. There's this anticipation of a fresh, new, unprecedented outpouring of the Holy Spirit that would take place in the future. And that is nothing less than the new covenant. Um, something which of course is inextricably linked to, uh, the Holy Spirit. So there are three key passages, um, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by hand to bring up out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, and I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. So this is Jeremiah's prophecy regarding the, the stoppage of the old covenant and what would be in is the anticipation essentially of the new. Um, and so in the future, there'll be a time, as he prophesies, when God will no longer relate to his people in the same way as he did in the old covenant, but in a new way that's now typified by God writing his law right on the people's hearts. It's no longer on stone, but right. their hearts. Right. 
Uh, so what's the second passage? All right, so Ezekiel 36, is, of course, is the other one that deals with the New Covenant in 25 to 27. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So the sprinkling of water and cleansing the people is a vivid portrayal of what's to come. Uh, the Holy Spirit is intimately connected then with the ripping out of that old heart, putting instead in a new one in verse 26. Yeah, which proves my interpretation of John 3. No, it so does Joel 2, 28 through 31 then says, and it will come about after this. I will pour out, well, we're going to do it one day, uh, my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions, and even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. So, so no longer will the Holy Spirit be reserved just for a select group of people in Israel is what this is indicating. Rather, we see this vivid interaction of the spirit among, you know, the young, the old, the male, the female, the slave, the free. And so all these barriers now are broken down under the new covenant. And so again, Joel is describing a, a new or fresh or unprecedented outpouring of the Holy Spirit that will come on all peoples to do very mighty works for the Lord. And so again, this is, this is a great expectation that courses through the Old Testament. And it's inextricably linked with the saving work of the Holy Spirit. What I find kind of interesting, and this is totally off subject, but because we've been doing the stuff on social justice, critical race and stuff, that in this prophecy that he's going to pour them out on their young and old servants, their male and female servants, the word there is slave, actually. Then in other words, I'm not going to free you and then make you, and then we're going to promote up this whole new social new world order that's going to bring social equality to the masses, which is that argument, but rather that across the board, no matter if you're in that situation in where you're a slave or you're a freeman, you will be given the spirit, which is really all that matters. Yeah. But that's a little side thing of just, sure. again, we, 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 people love to go to the Old Testament and try to find social justice to prove their point. But he's like, no, that's not how it's going to be. They're still going to be in sla slavery, but you'll have the spirit, which makes everything okay. So, yeah. anyhow. Yeah, good observation. So, yeah, those are the three big passages, though, that are anticipating right. the New Covenant. And the, the entire point is just to understand that one of the great markers of the new covenant is this new, fresh, unprecedented work of the spirit where he's doing something that he didn't previously do in the old covenant. So that's the point to understand. Um, so that's a very basic survey of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Uh, there's a lot more that could be said, but sufficient, I think. So next time we'll talk about the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, and we'll try and draw up more from the Old Testament as we do that. But um, the Holy Spirit comes more into focus once we get to the New Testament. And so we're going to spend a good amount of time there. Um, I think the doctrine of the Spirit is, it's rather straightforward in the epistles, but it's often made confusing 
uh, in the Gospels and especially in the book of Acts. Like the problem with that, though, is that they're taking the narrative and elevating it over the didactic. Yeah, and we'll have to explain yeah. that. Um, but you're right. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> so as Jesus shows up, the, the Spirit comes onto the scene as well. But wherever Jesus is, so is the presence of the Spirit. Um, the work of the Spirit in, in, in Jesus then is thrust upon the disciples in a new way in the book of Acts. And so, so Jesus, there's, he's described as the cornerstone of the church. Um, the apostles then are described as laying the foundation of, their, of, the, of the church as their work is, is queued up from that cornerstone of Jesus. Um, and so they had a very, I would argue, a very unique role. And so the Spirit empowered them in, in a unique way, even a way that was different than Jesus. Um, and so once, once the cornerstone was established, which is Jesus, the, and then the apostles did that unique work of laying the foundation of the church, um, now that the foundation's been laid, now the church is being built up, but on that foundation. Right. In fact, that's a whole basis of our reward, how well we build on that foundation, according to 1 Corinthians 3. Yeah, 100%. Um, and so now, because of that, though, I would say the Spirit is working in, in a little bit different way than it did even with Jesus and the apostles, because the church isn't the cornerstone, nor is it the foundation, but rather it's something that's being built up on that foundation that's already been laid by the apostles. I like the way you said that. So, um, yeah, it's where, it's, it's where things get confusing and complex, but I think because we make it that way. And so if we can keep everything in its proper chronology and, and keep ourselves situated in terms of the sequence of the events and the historical situations, because like you mentioned, the Gospels and Acts and narrative, it's not didactic. Um, understanding the role of the Spirit, I think, becomes refreshingly simplified. Yeah. Yeah. It's just us. We're the ones that make it complex. Yeah. Part of it's also just you're desperately wanting somehow to have some higher experience, right? You look at that and you're like, wouldn't that be cool if I could just, you know, maybe you've got a sick niece who's just desperately ill. Wouldn't it be cool if you could be like Peter and says, you know, I don't have silver or gold, but here, walk. Step into my shadow. You know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, um, I mean, really though, you you know, any parent who's holding in their arms a dying child, I, Kim and I have often talked about how horrible we can't even get our heads around, you know, these children are kidnapped and then, you know, murdered. Um, you know, what what devastation that must do to the home. And, uh, you know, again, so you look at those things, you long for something like that. And, and sometimes you end up pursuing something that's not yours to have. Um, and, and so I, I can show some sympathy toward some of the people's desire, but it doesn't change the chronology, like you're saying, yeah. of what's happening and why and when. And then the charlatans capitalize on that. Oh, golly, do they. And we see that all the time. Yeah. So, well, regardless, uh, be sure to tune in, join the conversation. We want your thoughts on the Holy Spirit up to uh, now. And also like, share, comment, rate, and review on these various social outlets, such as Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter and tell a friend.